You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that haven't given major influence in evangelical Christianity. This season, we are reading Wild at Heart by John Eldridge and Captivating by John and Stacey Eldridge, losing the plot on manhood and womanhood one chapter at a time. I am your host, Janice Legata, and I'll be ripping up this week's chapter with a good member of the Bad Book Club. Co-host, introduce yourself, please. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Dan. I am a returning Bad Book Club member. I he, him pronouns. I am just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am life. Life is just so great. So the last time I was on, I was a teacher, high school teacher. I was kind of hanging on for dear life. Some family stuff happened and I, my mother passed away and I started to really assess what I wanted out of my life. And now I'm like so happy to report I'm Dan from Talent Acquisition. And man, does it feel good to get nights and weekends back and have space to date and space to make plans with friends and space to go out on a Tuesday because all I need to do is roll out of bed and check my outlook in the morning. So it's been a good change. I am still an all-around kind of magical person. Right now, I'm interested in aspects of paganism and like just super open to different beliefs and practices and dabbling in a lot of different things because they make me happy or make me curious. Um, Jumped down a little bit of like a psychology rabbit hole in the last year. Um, And yeah, like still teaching yoga. I am serving at a restaurant. I don't really have much spare time, but when I do, I'm filling it with things that I absolutely love, like talking to one of my heroes, Janice Legata. Excellent. So we'll get started with the reading of the opening paragraph. We'll have a discussion and then hear the closing paragraph and send you on your way. For additional context and conversation and the option to listen to these episodes with no ads, I invite you to join the people of Jod by becoming a Jodly or Jod willing patron on Patreon. But either way, I'm happy you're here and I hope you're ready because without further ado, let's get into... Wild at Heart, Chapter 9. The invasion of France and the end of World War II actually began the night before the Allies hit the beaches at Normandy, when the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions were dropped in behind enemy lines to cut off Hitler's reinforcements. If you've seen Band of Brothers, The Longest Day, or Saving Private Ryan, you remember the dangers those paratroopers were facing. Alone or in small groups, they moved through the dead of night across a country they had never been to in order to fight an enemy they couldn't see or predict. It was a moment of unparalleled bravery and cowardice. For not every trooper played the man that fateful night. Sure, they jumped, but afterward, many hid. One group took cowardice to a new level. Too many had hunkered down in hedgerows to await the dawn, a few had even gone to sleep. PVT Francis Palace of the 506th saw what was perhaps the worst dereliction of duty. He had gathered a squad near Vireville. Hearing all kinds of noise and singing from a distance, he and his men sneaked up on a farmhouse. In it was a mixed group from both American divisions. The paratroopers had found liquor in the cellar, and they were drunker than a bunch of hillbillies on a Saturday night winding. Unbelievable. So, how, when, where, why did you become aware of this book? So, my journey with Wild at Heart, I feel like when it first came out, I was, my family had just migrated from the Catholic church in our town to the evangelical Lutheran church in our town. 
And basically the question was in Lakeville, Minnesota, did you like the traditional music or the contemporary music? Because everything else was exactly the same. And as the contemporary church, you know, mid nineties, late nineties was getting more, I don't know, dare I say Hillsongy, they opened a bookstore and they opened a coffee shop and they started like highlighting authors and doing, and I think this is really weird looking back, like doing sermon series where they just like summarized books they liked that were also on sale in the bookstore. Yeah, I, that, I have feelings about that. And so I remember getting like a four week sermon series on this. And here I was like the, probably like eighth or ninth grade, like kind of this like pudgy, awkward, increasingly self-aware, like theater kid who like was friends with the girls, like kind of asexual at that point. Like I hadn't really had my awakening and I'm just, Like, I always hated the purity talk and the masculinity talk because, like, neither computed for me. And so I remember going to church early with my neighbor, who was, like, an aspiring missionary. She was a little bit older than me. And we, like, went to this, like, extra special, like, book study before the sermon to get, like, the insider notes. And... Like, that was when I was like, oh, like, I'm not doing biblical masculinity right. Like, I need to change these things about me. And that, you know, was a whole long thing. Then fast forward, like, five, six years. I was living in Chicago. I was going to art school. I was really involved with a missionary organization that targets college campuses. Draw your own conclusions. There's only two choices. And... (laughs) And I'm convinced that, like, the only reason I, like, got sucked into this was because it was, like, packaged in, like, the art school kind of aesthetic and, like, the diversity of Chicago and, like, everybody was, like, living in their own apartment, commuting to school, like, kind of engaging with their neighborhood. So, like, we felt, even though we were, like, dumb and in our 20s and, like, sophomores in college, like we felt like we were like these yuppie urbanites, like bohemians. And I mean, I still feel a little bit bohemian. I'll explain that in a little while, but deep down inside. And I was going to a church plant in Lincoln Park. So like North side. And it was a lot of young people. Like, I feel like even now I would still kind of fit in, but I just have no desire to like try but it was like a lot of recent college grads, a lot of college students, a lot of like young families or like born and bred Lincoln Parkers who had like been there forever and were just really excited to have like a church community like on their block. And again, like I feel like because I was kind of launched into this evangelical thing in under the guises of art school and then kind of like launched in like this little cute neighborhood church with like a bunch of down to earth folks that like, you know, I feel like the pipeline kind of worked where I don't know, had I gone to like a larger state school, like, I don't know that I would have been like, Oh, interesting. But all of that to say my defenses were down and we decided to start doing a a 6am men's group at the church. And we did wild at heart chapter by chapter Then we did Way of the Wild Heart, the sequel, chapter by chapter. And we watched all of the videos that go with it. There's a video series 
that is actually like pretty well produced. Like the aesthetic is okay, but like you basically just watch people do the discussion questions with like pretty like scenic shots of like the mountains and like people riding their bikes and you know doing thing you know adventurey things. So that was where I really dove into this book, and I ha- used to have a copy that was underlined, scribbled, notes in the margins, dates. Oh my God, this is me. Like, you know, pray this out. Look in the blue journal for how I prayed this out in writing. You know, like all of these notes. And when, I don't know, I don't want to say like when I deconstructed, because it's like a whole process, but like somewhere in the process of separating from that chapter of my life and from these beliefs, an entire like four tiered bookshelf of Christian literature got consolidated to, I can see it. It's like six books now. And unfortunately, Wild at Heart didn't make the cut because I, w- I went looking for it this morning because I was like, oh, how fun would it be like to show you and we could look at what my underlines were and I get a live reaction. And then I was like, oh, that one didn't make it. Oh, well. So <laughs> there were always things that I was very skeptical. I used to be, so I was kind of the resident, I don't know. It wasn't even like feminist, but like, because I didn't hold these like staunch ideas of like biblical gender roles, I was considered like the Betty for Dan of the group. Like, like, oh, Dan's not going to like this. He's a feminist. You know, yes. It, it, for all intents and purposes, Yes, but like what I was disagreeing with was by no means like any nuanced feminism. But so I always really struggle with uh, with the idea of like biblical manhood or like one size fits all masculinity. Right. Because when I was living in Chicago, I was very aware that I was queer, that I liked men, that I did not know how to reconcile this with my faith and you know, all of this stuff we're going to get into with chapter nine, like I really took my, my identity, my sexuality to be these like attacks, right. To be these things that were going to like take away that, which was promised to me. Mm-hmm. That being said, I feel like along the way, all sorts of weird things about what a beauty to love, a, a battle to fight. Do I have what it takes? Like, all of these things, like, I don't eat beef. And people were, like, so offended that I got a turkey burger. Why does that matter? I would rather go to yoga than lift weights. Again, why does that matter? I like to go sit in fancy coffee shops and do my homework. Why does it matter that my cappuccino has latte art on it and there's a rainbow flag in the window of a local coffee shop? Like, all of these things that were like super performative, like I felt like they started to get policed to the point where I did like get rid of some of my, like back when you had like album, musical theater albums. Like I remember giving them to a friend. I remember like pulling stuff off my bookshelf. I remember like just starting to like police my interests because like people just had all of these comments about things that really didn't matter that were not necessarily like informed by this book, but like informed by like the inferences that you could draw that this book kind of plants the seeds for. So again, like 
by the time I had gone through all of these layers of like studying this book, discussing this book, being in community at 6am in the morning, like, you know, to do this and then go to class. And, you know, like by the time, like I was there, I had kind of been like programmed into it and really bought in all of that to say. So I've been aware of this book for a while. And I would say if I had to think about maybe like the top 10 most influential things in my evangelical journey, this is definitely on the list. So yeah, so there's a history there. So how did you feel about reading a chapter of it in 2022? Yeah, I mean, I was really curious. I was like, how much of this is going to hold up? Like I said, I've, I, you know, have kind of gone down like a little bit of a psychology rabbit hole, a lot of like self-compassion work, just starting to kind of understand trauma and the body a little bit more. And then like along that journey, like, Brene Brown and her literature has come up and vulnerability. So, you know, I'm thinking like, maybe this is all just going to be like a really well-intentioned Christian repackaging of some of this really powerful psychology. And I was greatly disappointed (laughs) because I was ready to like read it with a super, super open mind. I was ready to kind of see you know, with kind of more of like a queer theological lens, like all expressions are valid, like, but it is still so narrow. Like, I'm like, we weren't even like just interpreting it through the lens that we thought we were supposed to, like that was the lens we were being fed. And yeah, can I say, I thought it was really boring (laughs) on the other side. Like I had to take a lot of breaks reading this chapter because I'm like, why was this so riveting to me? Like this thesis is weak. There are so many pop culture references and history references and Bible verses. It's like, if you don't know every single one and the metaphor he's trying to draw, like you might as well just be like, "Uh uh-huh, that's fine. You know, and the the amount that this man across all of his books has quoted C.S. Lewis going back and reading C.S. Lewis on his own, it's like, I've already read the John Eldridge Spark Notes. Like, this isn't even fun for me. Like, and that is like a whole other like subculture that we should talk about sometime of just like the (laughs) quote C.S. Lewis and suddenly your interpretation makes sense, even though we're quoting works of fiction. Like we're never looking at mere Christianity. It's always his allegories. It's always his children's stories. And it's somehow supposed to corroborate this like, conservative perspective on like these Bible verses. Like I don't understand. It's the equivalent of me being like, you know what? But this is actually kind of true. Like I got interested in witchcraft because I like Hocus Pocus. Like, but I don't like now use Hocus Pocus as like (laughs) the like root of my practice. You know what I mean? Oh, Oh, brilliant. That that would speak to John Eldridge because you're using a movie reference to yep. <laughs> get your point across. He would get that. <laughs> yep. And I, part of me wants to know, like rhetorically, is he just kind of hoping, like, I hope they don't catch the reference because then they won't question it. Or is he just assuming that we've all seen the exact same movies that he has seen? Mm-hmm. And we just go through life as this monolith enjoying all the same media the same films, the same books. Like, 
I can't tell. And either view is like kind of sad to me. Like, So what chapter did you have and what was it about? Yeah. Is there, okay, can I ask a question about the earlier chapters? Is there like a chapter, I can't remember if it's in Wild at Heart or not, that like goes into this like elaborate, like almost pornographic, like erotica. And then at the very end, there's just like, one word in italics and it's like the most cringy thing you've ever read is that this book that is in or is that the sequel it might be the sequel but it also that happens okay. definitely in captivating so okay might... like because i remember somewhere along my like year of john eldridge <laughs> there was just this, like and i was i hope i get the like cringy sex <laughs> but instead i got the boring chapter nine and my question for you was, did you do this on purpose? Because I feel like it overlaps with what we talked about last year, like so much. And I was like, I wonder if it's like a joke on Janice. <laughs> like, uh, like, don't let the devil in. Your ministry will fail and everyone's going to hate you. The end. Like, because that was how I would sum up chapter nine. It's a cosmic joke because, no, like I just assigned them based on when people are available. And like, this is... This yeah. was meant to be. This was the chapter. This was the universe. Yeah, I love it. it. Well, I love it. I'm. It's fun to read something boring, knowing that like you get to rip it to shreds. So chapter nine is about fighting the battle, and we are all under attack. And there is an enemy that is trying to convince you that the enemy doesn't exist, and you are your freedom and your passion and your sense of adventure are constantly being ripped away from you by some external force. And of course, there's a field manual that you can buy. There's a sequel that explains this more. And there's a website that you have to pay for and a video course that you have to pay for if you really want to go into depth for how to like protect and fortify yourself. I just thought I would add that in as I was digging around on the, the resources. So like the thing that stuck out to me right away as problematic is like, we all want freedom. We all want to live a life of passion and adventure, or I shouldn't say all, maybe some people are like content not to like, I just listened to you on DRCK and you were talking about being fours. And I was like, Oh, maybe someday we can talk about this. Cause like, I feel really understood, but like, you know, like a large part of why my, I made so many changes in my life recently is because I wanted like this sense of adventure, this sense of freedom. I wanted to feel passionate about what I was doing. And so I cleaned up my resume and started talking to recruiters and researching companies I wanted to work for. Right. Like, I want to experience a sense of wonder and connection to the art. So I call up my friends that like going to see shows and we get tickets to things. I want to start putting myself out there and dating. So I join Tinder and start going out to dinner with people. Like, I feel like the, the whole premise of like, you hate your life, your marriage, your job, your finances, your spirituality are out of your control and there's all these external forces that are going to take these away from you, like, is just icky. And I feel telling somebody that, like, in order to be a real man, 
you have to have these things, but you also aren't really in control of these things. And at any given moment, they're going to be taken away from you and disagreements with your partner or like a sense of, I could be doing more with my life, a sense of, I don't like my job. I don't like my boss. Like instead of giving someone the, the permission to like dig into those things and put up boundaries and say no and look for other opportunities and look for things that they can change about their life. Like, no, like this is your life. It's been given to you. You are a son of God. These are the things you do. And it's all going to be taken away from you if you don't protect yourself, like is essentially what he's getting at. And right away, he talks about World War II, like the storming of Normandy Beach. And he talks about how some of the soldiers weren't real men because they were, weren't following orders or like were afraid or like too many of them went to one place or whatever. And again, there's like no citing of your sources. Like, could you just throw in like, according to such and such a historian, according to, you know declassified military documents, like whatever it is, like, could you triangulate and, you know, like a good academic source would give multiple reasons to think this, right? But no, like we're men. So we get really into battle and this is, you know, what we're going to talk about. And then before I give you any historical record, we're going to just compare this to Saving Private Ryan. Like (laughs) it's really catering to like, the lowest common denominator in terms of like historical knowledge and imagination. But he uses this phrase, many of them chose not to play the man. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who has had not being man enough, or you need to man up, or you're not a real man, like used against me over and over again, like instead of, me 10 years ago going, oh, I need to be a real man. I really need to read this and like internalize all this. Now my defenses are up. I'm like, I I don't really want to know what you have to say because if you're going to use this language, like I don't know that you are open to different expressions of masculinity. I don't know that you are going to be really illustrating any type of battle that like I want to be a part of. And like as a pacifist, war analogies just don't really appeal to me. Like, I'm sorry, you know, like, I think it's important to understand the history. It is important to understand the mechanics, where we've been, where we're going. Do not get me wrong. I love history. I, I just, I do not, it doesn't get my fire going of like, John, now I'm really into what you're saying. Like, I want to be a soldier. Like, honestly, when I, when you start using soldier analogies at me, I think, The military is one of the more rigid systems in our culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God bless the people who choose to be a part of this for whatever motivation. Like, thank you for your service. But like it to me speaks of a rigidity and a reactivity and a lifestyle where you're kind of constantly being trained and retrained to follow orders and so like there's on these multiple fronts i'm already we're not even like a page in and i'm my red flags are like waving all over the place so yeah i think your question was what was chapter nine about 
There we go. And that's, yeah, because I mean, yeah, nine chapters in the war imagery has been there from the beginning and it's just been, mm-hmm. yeah, just a constant onslaught. But when he gets to that, he does open up with the story about paratroopers and he says, yeah, if you've seen Band of Brothers, The Longest Day, or Saving Private Ryan, I have seen none of the above. So I'm like, this is, this is not my genre, not my thing. I don't know, but fine. So tell me this story. He's talking about these paratroopers. And basically, I guess a bunch of them landed wherever and then all, not he says ran off, but they just met up and then got into some alcohol. So they're just all hanging out and they're drunk. And then this another good soldier comes and is like, oh, look at this. And then all I could see in that story, I was like, oh, I'm just saying, like, just the humanity of these men who are mm-hmm. just in a place that they don't belong. We don't, mm-hmm. these are all individuals. We don't know what their individual motivations are for being there. I don't know who chose this, who's from a military family and had to go, who's there for money, who got drafted. Like, we don't know. But they've mm-hmm. all met together and they're all, dr- they're just hap- they're like having a good time and a bad time. I can't be mad at anyone for that. Like, also, as mm. just kind of the, I mean, this whole book is imperialistic and colonizing, and just all of that is mm-hmm. just all throughout it. But just the idea, you are a paratrooper. Yeah. You've been dropped somewhere. You do not belong. You guys are somewhere you should not be. Mm. Again, we can't get into all the intricacies of war and all the reasons or whatever. But, like, you're in a foreign land. You should not be here. I can't be mad at you guys for choosing not to be mm-hmm. out killing in this moment. Like, oh, we're just at this abandoned farmhouse and we found some alcohol and we're drunk. We're just, mm. that's what we're choosing to do at this time. And I'm like, fine. My takeaway at the end of this chapter was just like, oh, like, John Eldridge wants our lives to be just full of this spiritual busy work like there is mm-hmm. no time for life really mm-hmm. all you're in this battle so like it or not we've all been drafted we're all in this spiritual warfare forever and like there's nothing you can do about it and i'm like i just don't i don't understand god and john eldridge's view because i'm like if you are all powerful you can do mm-hmm. anything we're also invoking the name of Jesus and this idea that he fought the battle and he won. So if he won, why do we have to do all this work? Why is everything so difficult? Like, yeah, this chapter just makes everything a spiritual battle that yeah. you can never not be in. So it's the most boring and exhausting chapter. It reminds me a little bit of the social theorist Theodore Adorno, who did some work after World War II, kind of looking at how society, capitalism, fascism kind of like numbs people into this routine. And when you don't have any spare time or any spare resources, you basically work, survive, numb yourself, start over. And I think it was like in the 1950s, late 40s, like kind of in the suburban post-World War II boom that he saw like the seeds of like 
people are working this work week that's to buy things that they can't necessarily afford to just pay the bills, entertain themselves, work, pay the bills, entertain themselves. And he saw that as like a vicious cycle and one that was disruptive towards any type of real political mobilization, social change or activism, because there's no energy to see things from a new perspective. There's no energy to put yourself out there for these political movements or for any type of activism. And I believe it's either a very long essay or a really short book. And I just summed it up roughly. But I feel like when you're looking at John's kind of formula for this spiritual busy work, as you put it, you just get into the cycle to the point where you aren't really asking questions. And I felt kind of bad for, I think it was in the video series. I rewatched the episode of the video series for this chapter this morning, just to get in a headspace. And the guy that's sharing, he's like, he, you know, he's this very vulnerable, like I'm on Oprah kind of tone, but he's basically talking about like not feeling like he has enough money coming in, like, and financial scarcity. And yes, that is a symptom of capitalism that is a reality that many of us live by, but I do not think that is spiritual attack. Like there are things we can do to dismantle the system and create a more egalitarian economic system. There are ways we can rework our budget. There are ways that we can rework our lifestyle. In the meantime, you can, you know, find another job, you know, like, there are things that you can do right now to understand why you're in this position instead of just pray away the fear of scarcity. And I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but like towards the end of this chapter, John's like, see the appendix for this prayer. I want you to pray every two weeks. And I'm, and then once you do this every two weeks, like you're not going to want to answer the phone. You're not going to want to, do any of these things that are going to take you out of this prayer space after two weeks. And it honestly, like that is what always made me feel like I was under attack. I was like, I'm doing these things. I don't feel any different. I must be under attack. I must not be good enough. And I don't know. Like, I just don't buy it. I'm sorry. Like a lot of his examples are things that are just, life circumstances and we could build up a sense of community and a sense of resiliency and a, and coping skills and like none of them are inherently spiritual or maybe they are all spiritual because everything is spiritual but like you know you're not going to find some magical external solution to these problems necessarily right right so let's detour a little bit because like I was yeah. someone who was raised very charismatic, very Pentecostal, very, mm -hmm. the devil is real. The devil is mm -hmm. out to get you. And yeah, everything, everything is spiritual. At this point, I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe mm -hmm. in the idea of the devil, but then I'm in a weird place. I'm like, I do believe in spiritual world, spirituality. I mm -hmm. don't know exactly what all I believe about it, but 
I don't know, like this chapter, I was kind of wrestling with myself because I'm like, how much do I believe the spiritual world mm-hmm. affects us day to day? And mm-hmm. do I, I think I do lean more towards the side of uh, spirituality is neutral and we can choose to be open to it, choose to lean into it or not. But I don't think I believe in active evil spiritual forces actively Mm-hmm. Affecting individuals, systems. Mm-hmm. Yes, it may be bigger, wider issues. Yeah, I think there are forces behind that. I wouldn't necessarily say you know, <laughs> the demon of capitalism. Is there one mm-hmm. you know, master demon pulling the strings? Like no, I think there are a lot of. I don't even know, just forces. And I don't know what that is. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's something, you know, fallen angels, or is that just things we as humanity have empowered and put out there? Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know. What what are your spiritual thoughts on the spirit world? Yeah. Well, okay. So on uh, today, subject to change, subject to grow, I'm at a point where I just enjoy not having the answers and exploring and trying new things. So I just want to throw that out there. I definitely think of the world just being full of energies, be that from the universe, be that from the earth, be that from us to each other, and that there are energies and intentions that are at play in every which direction, right? And I think that we are kind of responsible to protect our own energies and project our own energies and, you know, for good, bad, otherwise, like, you know, one of the beliefs that I've kind of leaned into with my Italian American heritage is malocchio, evil eye, where like you can, you have to kind of be responsible for your attitude towards someone because you, people are accidentally projecting negative energy and you're kind of inadvertently cursing each other with this evil eye. And it kind of just makes me feel more accountable for what are my intentions in an interaction or, Ooh, that was really weird. There was some bad vibes there. Like I'm going to pull away and take care of myself right now so that this doesn't affect me in other ways. And then on the universal level, I do see how you pull a little bit from here and something sprouts up over there or you finally make space and something else happens. And so like there are this intersection of like our spiritual intentions and our physical actions that kind of allow things to flow and happen. Um, uh, One, I'm rereading Big Magic um, by Elizabeth Gilbert. Such a wonderful book for someone with like creative sensitivities And she does speak about like muses and inspiration as kind of being these like sentient little like sprites that are out in the environment looking for someone to collaborate with. I don't know. It's kind of a romantic idea, but like, I also, I don't know. Like, do I think that there are like ghosts and goblins and muses that are like following me around right now? Maybe no. Have I been leaning in since my mom passed, leaning more into like the intentions of ancestors and staying connected to my heritage and being in touch with her energy as best I can? Yeah. Does that mean I think that she's right here 
you know, right now, I don't know. I kind of almost see her more as like, and like, I don't know that she's watching everything I do, but like that she's just sending me little confirmations and affirmations and love and, you know, like there's like static in between. You can't really see from one world to the other, but like life is more fun in my perspective when you do believe in magic and when you both lean into the mystery of spirituality and, and also just kind of try to live your best life in the here and now. I don't know. I, I feel like that was a really unsatisfying answer, but I think that's kind of where I am right now. No, I think that's great. Like, I think that's the space that we live in. And I think, I know that I love that so much more than people being so sure. No, it's Satan. And Satan is putting these thoughts in your head. Like, Yeah. When you were like in more charismatic environments, did they ever like reference? I feel like in charismatic churches I've been in, there's like, there's a book. It's like a dictionary of demons, but we won't speak the demon's name, but we can look up the demon and like this demon doesn't want us to plant this church in this town. So we're going one more town over. Did that ever happen? I am referencing a super specific experience, but I'm like, does this book even exist? Like, (laughs) I don't know if there was ever a book, but I definitely do remember conversations about, yeah, like, uh, territorial demons like yeah this demon Mm -hmm. this territory this demon feels like they own this territory and so yeah you can go there if you want to but you're gonna have to fight this so yeah you might want to go a town or two streets or whatever and even in the past few years because my mom sends me a lot of stuff that I just don't pay attention to but it was like water demons or like coastal demons and like that's why like California and New York are like these liberal bastions because we're on these coasts and these coastal demons like socialism or whatever it is so this idea that yeah there are these territorial strongholds certain demons in certain places and they've been there so long and this is how they run things and this is why your city is the way it is and Hmm. whatever well i mean i would Cities and beach are kind of my dream vacation. So, like, take me to the place with the fun beach, liberal beach demons. That sounds like I'll fit right in. (laughs) And that's exactly what the devil wants you to think. (laughs) But this chapter, like, it gives, it puts all this impetus on men to be doing all this spiritual busy work because you are constantly under Mm -hmm. attack but then at the same time removes all responsibility and all accountability because it's not you. It's this Mm -hmm. demon trying to make you think and do whatever. And so by the end of it, I'm like, what, what's the point? Yeah. It feels like it under the guises of we're going to help you to live a more truthful, vibrant, passionate, adventurous life. We're going to call this out, but we're also going to give you all of this reason to like stay in your little box of like working your nine to five, you know, being a parent, being a good member of the church, which probably means going to church before work, going to church after work. Like, you know, I, one of the more unhealthy church systems I was in, they used to say volunteer is 
30 hours a week, part-time is 40 hours a week and full-time employment with them is 80 hours a week. And funny story, that was the church that had a cafe in it because that was like the most like far over here, like evangelical capitalist machine church I've ever been in. And I was reading a book in the cafe and journaling. And I think I was doing work for grad school, honestly. And somebody came up to me and was like, I've noticed you sitting here for a half an hour. Are you the new pastor? And I was like, no. And then she looked at my notebook and she said, are you writing a book? And I was like, no, like I'm a grad student. I, you know, was, didn't have any thing to do. And I was sitting here drinking a coffee, doing some homework or whatever I was doing. And she's like, oh, I've never seen anybody sit still in here for so long who wasn't a pastor. And again, I was like, what is this place? <laughs> Why are we so afraid of like reading a book and doing homework or like, so we shouldn't say afraid perplexed why are we so perplexed by somebody like doing homework and drinking coffee on a sunday morning before service like why is it go spiritual busy work why is it and like a lot of it comes back to your partner right your wife um and this one hits hard for me because um i think you know i think i mentioned this on my last episode like i was married we were missionaries together and we were miserable and I was very closeted and very trying to do biblical masculinity. And we were each other's abusers is how I would summarize it. We were both making each other's life miserable. Yet you would read something like this that says your marriage is under attack. Your identity is under attack. Your, you know, and in about three pages, Suddenly, me being gay is like having a queer demon attacking me, trying to take me away from God, and me having communication difficulties with my then wife is is a demon trying to attack our marriage because our marriage is where we're in like the purest expression of whatever holiness or whatever he says. And again, there's like no accountability or no sense of like you are in a vicious cycle you need to get therapy and figure this out so i don't know like because it kind of goes through these layers of like your identity is under attack and your insecurities are like a sign of that and then it's like your family is under attack and your lack of communication with your wife is a sign of that and then it's like your ministry is under attack and your ego and like your the lack of time and the lack of resources and like communication breakdowns are a sign of that. And you need to be a warrior and a soldier. And like, we need to fight and take up our weapons. And it's like, you're weaponizing things that don't need to be weaponized to fight battles that don't exist. When really, if we all took a step back and was like, who am I at my core? What do I want? What is incongruent with that right now? And what steps can I take to change that? Not saying that some of this isn't clinical, not saying that some of this isn't societal, but I do believe if everybody could just take a step back and look at what is congruent for them and cut out the things that are not working and get help and heal and do their trauma work and whatever, I, I think it's like the like a slide puzzle. Like I think, you know, like you get them at like a children's birthday party, you have to make the picture you might have to move like one piece at a time to get the full picture. But if you start thinking about 
these things on a personal level instead of like, this is what God's been given me. This is what has is being is under attack. If you start thinking about your piece, maybe you can start sliding things and putting up boundaries and getting a clearer picture uh, instead of basically just rhetorically being told like, you are the problem, you are under attack, you need to take up scripture as a weapon. And I have a whole page of notes about that because when we start to weaponize things like scripture, like prayer, like church community, suddenly now every book is a weapon and you're assessing through this lens, maybe this even binary of like good, bad, God, devil. And so now it's not just Harry Potter, for instance, it's like the work of the devil. Now it's not just the, my example is really funny. Like the satanic temple (laughs) is the enemy. It's not just a political kind of counter narrative organization. You know what I mean? Or be that black bodies and liberation theology or trans bodies and queer theology. Like suddenly it's like in, out. Weapons on my side, weapons on the other side. And like, dare I say, that's the thinking that like fuels so much of where we're at in this political moment. Mm -hmm. Not saying John Eldridge was the one to like start that. I think there are people who have done it much worse and much more dangerously. Don't get me wrong, but he's definitely not helping the situation. He's contributing to that dichotomy. He absolutely, absolutely is. Like this book and the influence it had. And like, I don't think, I don't think John Eldred is some mastermind. Like he was like, ooh, mm-hmm. 20 years from now, there's going to be an insurrection. You know, I want this book to help build towards that. I don't think he thought mm-hmm, that at all, mm-hmm. but this was laying groundwork for a lot of what we're seeing now. It just making mm-hmm. opening men up to these ideas that like, yeah, you're supposed to be aggressive. You're supposed to be violent. There are battles, you know, that you need to fight. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just think these books get so close to where all oh, like this could have been a good thing. If you had men putting all this energy to fighting patriarchy, fighting these systemic things Mm -hmm. that your ancestors set up, here are some things that we put out that we have built that are not great. And here's what we can be doing, you know, you and Mm -hmm. your band of brothers, here's something to be fighting. Like when he you know, encourages, you know, you got to get to your band of brothers and you guys got to mm-hmm. spend all this time and do all this stuff. How much different could things be? <laughs> you're like, all right, y'all are going to get together. And for the next six months, you're going to take this anti-racism course. Yeah. You're going to take, you know, you're going to do something that's fighting a system that's actually here. Mm-hmm. And you're going to put the time and effort towards that instead of this thing that can never be measured the goalposts are forever mm-hmm. going to be moving. We are fighting the voices in our head, the demons that mm-hmm. are attacking us. And as soon mm-hmm. as you defeat this one, 
well now, ha, the devil's got a new plan for you. There's another one. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't see it and if you don't believe it, that's part of the problem because the devil's just trying to convince you he doesn't exist right. all of the time. Yeah. And it becomes also this like framework for gaslighting those of us that like are starting to step away. Cause it's like, oh, well, if you're not seeing it, that's like sign number one that you are in dangerous territory. Right. Um, and I, I think of, he has since passed away, the leader of the Wild at Heart group that I was a part of in Chicago, kind of, I don't want to tell too much of his, his story, but kind of deconstructed and started peeling away from evangelicalism and passed away at like 35, like way too young. Like, and, but like, I, as somebody who had like been under his tutelage, like in this Wild at Heart group, like didn't know what to do. Like seeing this like friend and mentor give less and less to the church because he was the one that kind of taught me like, this is what it looks like that somebody's being attacked and somebody's being deceived and being taken away. And it caused me to like, start to fear him and fear the relationship and pull away instead of authentically loving him as a friend and as a brother and agreeing to disagree or going on the journey together or, you know, offering, any type of support right because like whenever anybody makes a big change be it moving away from the church be it coming out be it you know even just changing jobs like there there are just different levels of like you need to know who your real friends are you need to feel like you have a support system through the transition but like we kind of collectively like didn't know what to do with this poor guy and like, I'm a little sad, like I missed opportunity to keep up what would have been a really great friendship because I was so afraid of knowing him outside of the confides of like a really rigid definition of Christianity and spirituality. And so like, even in the context of band of brothers type mm-hmm. paradigms, it doesn't really give you a great framework for like, how do we authentically journey together? How do we get to know each other as multifaceted people? It's kind of like you either fit the criteria or you don't, or you're like in this awkward in between, but we really haven't talked anything of substance. So we don't know how to be vulnerable with each other. We don't really know how to call each other in or call each other out or have conversations that don't have much of a resolution because we haven't really been trained in any of that authenticity because if it doesn't, if it fits the script, we call it authentic. We call it real. We call it the best friendship you're ever going to have. And then if it doesn't fit that script, it's like "Eh, the devil got him, you know? And so like, I, I guess I just share that because I have a really complicated history with some of the principles in this book how they were both weaponized against me and the people who like mentored me in these principles. Right. You know, led to a lot of missed opportunity. Yeah. And just that idea, the devil got him. It is a vicious cycle and it is just a cycle of gaslighting because it is that you are under attack 
but then also it is your fault if you give in to that attack. So it's, mm. I don't know, like so much of Christian spiritual warfare stuff. I like a lot of it on this side feels very arrogant. First of all, this idea mm-hmm. that like this eternal malevolent being is worried about me. Like it's coming after mm-hmm. me. It sees this idea of, you know, as someone who grew up in church and was like, good, I was the good kid. So then I always had the question in the back of my mind, like, do I even matter? Do I even have a testimony? Because if the devil's not attacking me, then the devil's not worried about Mm me. So if I don't have this, you know, gruesome testimony of what I was saved from and the clutches of the devil that I escaped, oh, Mm -hmm. like maybe I don't really mean that much. I don't really, I'm not really doing anything over here because no, no spiritual being is worried about me. You know, Christians love a testimony. So the people with the worst stories get the best treatment and like kind of have the most hope, you know, oh, there must be something really good for you. So there's that idea. And then this idea that if I am, yeah, if I'm staying on the path and I'm fighting the spiritual battles, then I'm spiritually stronger than you. And if the devil got you, you were spiritually weak and that's unfortunate, but that's on you, even though it's all on the devil. Yeah. When I'm in it and I'm still fighting the battle, then everything is the devil's fault. But as soon as I give in, then it was always me and I was always the problem. It's always my responsibility. Like, it's just such a weird... It's like, it's not my fault when that's a convenient narrative. It is me when that's a convenient narrative. But it ultimately just ends, keeps you in this like egotistical paralysis where you think you are the center of the world, the main character, so to speak. And like, I love reality TV. Like I love CBS reality TV, Survivor, Big Brother Challenge. Like I'm all about these shows, but it's almost like that. Like, you know, in these shows, a lot of times you go after the threat, whether it's the person who's winning the competitions, whether it's the person poised to win, whether it's the person playing the best social game. And I feel like it's almost like the spiritualization of that principle like the spiritual Darwinism, like the threats are going to get eliminated and like I can either become a threat and then be susceptible to this and have to be on the aggression or like, oh, look, a threat got eliminated. Now I'm the top dog. Like, look at me. I didn't even really, you know, I earned this or whatever it is. Like, and it just, I don't know. I feel so much less driven by ego Although, like, in evangelical teaching, like, it, it feels like pride and the self are, like, enemy number one. I feel like right now, where I stand five, six, seven years out of it, I feel like I'm less driven by ego than in this performative system of, like, really needing to like stand on the right chess square and be aligned with the right people and saying the right things and thinking that I'm like, you know, anointed for this or that. And like that my opinion matter. you know what I mean? Like, Oh, I'm better than them because they fell away or, you know, this because, you know, the pastor's spending time with me and, you know, I'll just call bullshit because when I came out and got divorced and moved across the country, I I feel like I lost half of my friends each go 
and can count the people who stuck with me on that journey, like on less than one hand. And so, you know, I was the new up and coming anointed kid who was doing all the right things and who could point the finger in the right direction. And then as soon as it was my turn, like somebody else just came and occupied that space and whether they forgot or whether they, you know, created some sort of story that like assisted in why I left or whatever it was, or, or, you know, whether the devil got me or whether I wasn't really saved to begin with or whatever it is, right. We've heard them all, but like, I mean, I've been on both sides of losing friends because I'm either the one getting taken away or I'm seeing someone else get taken away or at least as you know, how I would perceive it. And this book, this chapter the whole book, I'm always interested in how women show up and women don't, I mean, they don't make great appearances in the book at all, but this chapter mm-hmm. is very light on women references aside to mm-hmm. talk about the importance of marriage and how, you know, mm-hmm. marriage is a stunning picture of what God offers his people, which is fascinating and that Jesus wasn't married. So you would think, you know, he'd be the example of all the greatest things and he didn't have that, which then also bring the, brought up the question for me, like, well, when did, when is John deciding like marriage began? Cause were Adam and Eve married? Was there to say that? Like, it's a very governmental, very legal, you know, situation. So are we saying that's marriage? You can't be talking about biblical marriage. Cause like this romantic idea was not that at all. Like, this is just a property kind of situation. So, like, I'm always just fascinated, like, with when did... Yeah. When does Christianity's idea of whatever marriage is supposed to be, like, when does that even begin? Because it's not... It doesn't have a great history. And then mentions David and his affair with Bathsheba. And I'm like, well, you said an affair, so I'm already not listening to you. That's yeah. not what that was. So women don't really show up. And then... And if you want to listen to last year's episode, I believe we established that David is a dick. I think that was what you said. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Full villain. Sorry, mode. I totally interrupted. Yeah. Totally interrupted. But that was one of the things that reminded me of last year. Yeah. But then that's, that's good because then it reminds me. Because so women don't really appear. And then towards the end, he gets into this whole band of brothers thing. So you cannot go into battle alone. You have to have fellowship with mm-hmm. other men. Um so then, you know, now I'm thinking about David and Jonathan. So in his heyday, when he was still a good guy, you know, still on the upswing, he had this friendship with Jonathan. But we don't want to talk about that. And then, yeah. you know, he says, men find it hard to accept that they need the fellowship of other men. And so he does all this work to be like, no, you can't. Like masculinity can only be bestowed by masculinity. You know, it's all about fathers and sons. It's all about, you know, what you can only get from men. And, you know, I've seen a lot of conversations recently about how straight men, how most men are actually homoerotic. Because, yes, they will have, straight men will have sex with women, but they don't respect women. They don't, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't really talk to women the people that men look up to and respect and admire and, you know, want the opinions of, and the people that matter to men are men. Mm -hmm. And so it's just this weird, 
mess. So we're all in a mess over here. But then as a queer man, you, I would think, would be the pinnacle of the example of, you know, what it is to be in fellowship with men. (laughs) And yet, (laughs) John Eldridge does not like that at all. Mm-hmm. So how, I don't know, how do you, how were you taught to reconcile? How do you deal with fellowship with men, yeah. relationship with men, needing men to bestow masculinity, men being the height, men needing men, but not like that. It's so yeah. weird. Cause as you're talking, I remember when I was a missionary for this ministry that will remain nameless, I got what was called a 360 degree review. And I think these, like, they took some corporate concept and, like, Christianized it. But basically, all of these people you were close to got to, like, do this anonymous survey about you. And then they, like, created a file that was, like, here's what you can improve on. Like, and one of mine was you have too many close relationships with women, And the justification was twofold. One was masculinity bestows masculinity. And the other was like purity culture, like men and women can't be friends because the sex gets in the way. And I was like, oh, you don't have to worry about the latter. And then I found when I was hanging out with like straight men, especially like straight evangelical men, it was so like, that was when they would be like, why aren't you eating a steak? Like, why did you get a salad? You know, why is your tank top pink? Why are you dancing to this song? Why don't you know football? Why, like, it was so superficial, it was disgusting. And I was like, yeah, you know what? My professors and my yoga teachers and my theater friends, like, they are just more interesting and they don't fit the mold and more than half of them are women and this is who I want to learn from and like on the other side as like a queer man who kind of had to learn to perform biblical masculinity compulsory heterosexuality you know like that meant like not going to yoga that meant not taking the dance class I wanted to take that meant like not going out to coffee with the friends I wanted to go out to coffee with because they were all women. Mm -hmm. That meant like needing to make sure if I had people over to my apartment, it was equal gender, like equal division of like men and women were invited and like it didn't look like I was hanging out with all the girls. It meant like going to lift weights and making like weird burp and fart jokes and you know, it, it meant all these really stupid, inconsequential things. And now being like in fellowship with men as a little bit more self-actualized version of myself, I feel like one, I'm asking like, how authentic are you? I don't really have time for people who like aren't authentic and I don't really care. Like if you're being authentic, there's something interesting about you. Like I respect you. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's less pressure, right? It's like gay, straight, whoever you are, whether I'm interested in dating you, whether I'm not. Like, I will say I definitely have the like when Harry met Sally, like 
you know, can we be friends? Is the sex going to get in the way? Like, is this a slow burn? Is this a romantic thing? Is this a friendship? Like that is harder to understand because it is more nuanced when like the answer is yes, any of these, (laughs) but I feel like I'm just more interested in like, who are you? Are we compatible? What are like, do we have anything to offer each other? are you somebody that I can be vulnerable with? Right. Like, are you somebody that I can kind of fly my freak flag a little bit and not feel like it comes into question. And like, I have two straight friends that come to mind that like are just very comfortable with themselves and very able to talk about my sex life and their sex life and joke. And I wouldn't say it's like homoerotic or misleading or confusing, But like, we're not policing our behaviors or policing our topics of conversation or our mannerisms in the same way when it is more like, this is, I I do use this phrase a lot. Like I was, I'll say like, oh my God, I'm going to hang out with boring straight people. And like that to me means I'm not going to be energized because I am going to have to be careful how I talk about myself, how I talk what I talk about and uh, be a little more filtered. And then a lot of times it means that we're probably like doing boring things like watching meat cook or watching football (laughs) and like the occasional theater or literature reference that falls out of my mouth gets met with like a blank stare. And then I'm just like, get me the fuck out of here. (laughs) So it's weird, like how John Eldridge would describe it like, yes, you meet your people and and you find that je ne sais quoi that connects you to each other and you grow in like an intimate friendship. Yes, that has happened. You know, it's seeing models of what is possible that make you, that kind of reflect back and give you the desire uh, to be that, you know, that that's why representation is so important. Like, but like, the people I'm looking to are not necessarily these like models of quintessential patriarchal masculinity, normativity or what, you know, whatever labels you want to throw that way. And, but like the relationships are so much more meaningful because there's like room for I do me, you do you. We don't necessarily have to affect each other. Where like in evangelical spaces, I feel like it was, if we don't move as a monolith, that is dangerous, right? Dan can't like musical theater and yoga because those things aren't boy enough. Therefore, he can't talk about it and we should help him not be involved in those things anymore. Instead of like, cool, that's not my thing, but you have your thing. We can still be friends about this other thing over here, you know? I felt betrayed when I found out mm. that John Eldridge was a theater person. Worked in theater, loved the theater, whatever. And then, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just, he just, he bums me out. These, these Christian mm-hmm. jobs, they always bum me out. But I'm like, oh, like, yeah. this book is, this is obviously him writing out of his own issues. Mm-hmm. But, like, this book could have been so different if he felt like he could be himself. But he yeah. couldn't. So he had to leave the theater behind and leave 
whatever. And this book is like, to me, just written out of this reaction of, well, if I can't do it and I can't enjoy these things that I used nobody to enjoy, else nobody else can either. Mm-hmm. And I, I gave this up. I stripped these parts of myself away to become a real man. And this is the path that everyone must take now. Mm-hmm. And it's just... But then the fact that you're kind of hating yourself in the meantime because of that or you don't know yourself so you're afraid of yourself that's the attack right like it is a self-fulfilling prophecy exactly exactly if i could urge you to try one thing that will change your spiritual life noticeably please pray the daily prayer i've included in the appendix i have developed this prayer over the years as i've learned more about how to take my place in christ each day and how to shut down the attacks coming against me it has proven so powerful not just to me but to countless men now making it a part of their life looking at this from the perspective everything is permissible cannot stop john eldred from writing a book obviously but not everything is beneficial so on a scale from one to 10, 10 beneficial for everyone, go out and get it, live by it, down to one harmful for everyone, throw this in the trash and then burn that trash can. Where would you put this? <laughs> I would give it a one. I would say we are on, you read the introduction and he's like, I want people to have this sense of wonder and adventure and beauty and passion and like contemporary society and contemporary spirituality like doesn't give us this. And I'm gonna give you a framework, right? Had he just given us his life story with things he had learned along the way and didn't present it as the definitive guide or, you know, better than everything else that was out there, and reactionary in that there's one right answer and everything else is dangerous, I would rate it higher. And honestly, that was kind of, I will say when you announced that you were doing this book, and I remembered having these kind of positive experiences around this book, but also like knowing that it didn't really help the situation for me coming into my queerness, I was excited to go back in because I'm like, maybe it is one of those things where like, had just a few things been worded differently, it would be good. But no, it's trash, it's dangerous, it's reactionary, it's reinforcing patriarchy, which, you know, ends up starting the flywheel of reinforcing all the other things that are keeping people down and, you know, preventing us from moving forward. And it's instead of it being like this is my healing journey and this is how i found passion and beauty and adventure it's i'm gonna strip the personal out of it and give you like a field guide with so many references your head's gonna spin you know not for me yeah yeah so instead of wild at heart what is something that you would recommend if you are able to get to broadway like i think Please go see A Strange Loop, Moulin Rouge, Hades Town, Death of a Salesman. Like, please go see these poignant, beautiful, powerful shows that are giving me so much life for so many different reasons, but also inviting me just into a sense of curiosity and wonder and being okay with the things that I don't know. They 
have been so therapeutic for me and many people in my life who have gotten a chance to see them. So, yeah. yeah. Any closing thoughts? So I will say, I think I alluded to these three authors earlier, like Fran Leibowitz, Elizabeth Gilbert, in uh, especially in Big Magic, and Brene Brown. All three of these women, they their work for me in this time in my life has brought me back to unapologetically being myself. One through really sarcastic humor writing, one through kind of more whimsical creative process, the intersection of spirituality and creativity, and one through more of an academic psychological approach. But they all have kind of invited me to show up 100% unapologetically me and to say yes to the things that come along and say, okay, well, you don't want to come along, you're lost to the things that don't. And if you don't know who Fran Lebowitz is, check her out. She's my hero, <laughs> just like Janice. And that's that. Thank you for dropping in on the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening than we did reading. Bad Words is an irreverent media podcast, the Legata Scratch production, and a God is not given side hustle. Produced by Janice Legata and made possible by the generous support of Jodley and Jodwilling patrons like Wesley. Thank you, Wesley. If you're enjoying this season, please let the people know by leaving a rating or a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you're looking for a better book experience, ask Amazon about The Grift of God and or The Divide by me, Janice Legata. And until we meet again, take care of you and be well. This has been an episode of Bad Words, but to finish up, here are some good ones. I would invite men to unapologetically show up as yourself. Whether that mean going to therapy and starting to do some self-compassion work and some trauma work, actually, like, let's just say that, let's make that the thing. Explore who you are. What makes you happy? Also, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, of Moulin Rouge, like freedom, beauty, truth, and love. Like, what for you does freedom look like? Are you hurting anyone else? What does beauty look like? How can you fill your life with more things that are beautiful to you? What does truth look like? In that truth, are you keeping anyone else's truth down? No? Great. Yes, let's talk about it in therapy. And love, like what does love look like? I think a lot of men need to give their sexuality a second, third, fourth, fifth pass, because especially in the church, we're just taught to be like afraid of everything and see everything as evil. And again, if it is consensual and it is safe and it is respectful of all parties involved, you might need to explore some queer things and some kinks and some polyamory and some solo sexual things. Like do not hear that I'm giving you carte blanche to like go out and do all these things in this, in the, um, framework of consent and safety and respect and legal like you know but I think that there are a lot of repressed men that would be happier were they allowed to just exist as bisexual were they allowed to explore their gender expression were they allowed to not feel ashamed uh, about their kinks and have a partner that was willing to allow them explore it and had a vocabulary to be able to talk about that. And like, 
I don't know. I think just the more that you can do for you right now, that looks like for me reading things that make me laugh, that looks like spending time with people who only energize me, that looks like getting enough sleep, that looks like taking yoga classes, that looks like drinking good coffee, even though it's a little more expensive. You know, like little things that you can do to just say, I like this and I don't really care. And I think one begets the other. I think if you start exploring emotionally, you start exploring mentally, you start exploring physically, you start exploring sexually, like it all just kind of takes you to a whole new dimension. So men, stop living in the box. Like stop believing that there's only one right way to do it. And, and if you are not hurting someone, and if you are not perpetuating toxic systems, toxic ideologies, do the thing with freedom. And if it doesn't bring you joy, find something else that you can do with freedom. Stop looking for someone else to fulfill you on this and being afraid that's gonna be taken away from you. Joy is not scarce. There's, we can co-create as much joy as we want. Just because someone else is happy doesn't mean you can't also have that same degree of joy.